Introducing a new association of churches in Mid-America, MARBAC. The Mid-America Reformed Baptist Association of Churches is a regional association for Reformed Baptist churches holding to the 1689 Confession of Faith with a goal of partnering together for the advance of the gospel and supporting and planting churches in the region. To learn more or find out how you can be involved, visit marbac.org. That's M-A-R-B-A-C dot org. One of the hallmarks of Reformed theology is the teaching that there has only been one way of salvation throughout human history. And that one way of salvation has always been explained by the five solas. Salvation was, is, and will always be on the basis of Scripture alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Brethren, this is true today as we preach the gospel to our friends and our loved ones and our neighbors. This was true for the reformers when they preached the gospel in the Middle Ages. This was true for Jesus and the apostles as they preached the gospel in the first century. And this was even true with the very first proclamation of the gospel all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The Proto-Evangelium, or the first promise of the gospel to Adam and Eve, was a five-sola gospel. So in this hour, I want us to consider this. And most importantly, I want us to see the sola of Christ alone, right there in the garden, as Jesus Christ is presented as the only Savior and Redeemer of guilty, hell-deserving sinners. I think we can see that explicitly all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The Lord Jesus was the only hope of Adam and Eve, and of course, he is our only hope as well. So with that being said, turn with me now to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Now, the opening, opening chapters of Genesis tell us of three monumental events which took place at the beginning of creation. First, in Genesis 1 through 2, we read about how paradise was created by the triune God as he made the Garden of Eden to be his special dwelling place and where he would be worshipped and served by our first parents, Adam and Eve. Right? He made the heavens and the earth, but he especially made the Garden of Eve, Eden as his special dwelling place so that mankind could worship him there. But second, in Genesis 3, we read about how paradise was lost by Adam, our federal head, when he sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit, was condemned by God, and was kicked out of the garden by God to live a miserable, cursed life. But third, in Genesis 3.15, we read about how paradise would be restored as the very first promise of salvation is announced by God to Adam and Eve through a curse placed on the serpent. So in Genesis 3.15, we read these words, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we'll look at this verse in more detail a little bit later on, but before we do so, I want us to think about how 
Even Adam and Eve stood in need of a five-sola gospel to save them. Adam and Eve needed to be saved on the basis of Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So let's think about those things for a moment. First, Adam and Eve had to be saved on the basis of Scripture alone. After our first parents sinned, God condemned them and kicked them out of the garden. He separated them from his special presence and denied them any sort of access back into the garden. Remember, he put the two cherubim there, the entryway into the garden, and they held those flaming swords in their hand. There was no way back in. So in essence, the lights were turned off on Adam and Eve, right? Creation was screaming out to them that the world is cursed because of them. And their own consciences were condemning them constantly for their guilt before God. So they were living in the darkness of their sins. And they needed an inspired, infallible, authoritative word from God if they would ever know the way of salvation. They couldn't figure this out through tradition, through creation, through conscience, through their own inventions and imaginations, through listening to their own hearts, or through talking with the cherubim or consulting the serpent once again. General revelation was insufficient to save them. What they needed was God to specially reveal to them a plan and way of salvation if they were ever to draw near to God again and live in his blessed presence. So in that sense, they stood in need of scripture or a spoken word from God alone in order to be saved. But secondly, they had to be saved by grace alone. On the day they ate the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve stood before God as miserable, condemned, hell-deserving sinners. The wage they earned by their sin was physical death in their bodies, spiritual death in their relationship with God, and eternal death in hell. The wages of sin is death, and Adam and Eve deserved all three kinds of death. So if they would be saved, it would not be by their own efforts. It would not be by pulling themselves up by their sandal straps. It would not be by getting another crack at obeying God's law. It would not be by them cooperating in any way with God to bring about their salvation. Instead, if they would be saved, it would be by God's pure, one-sided grace alone. It would be by God giving them the exact opposite of what they deserved. It would be not by a wage justly earned, but by a gift freely offered and freely received. So they stood in need of grace alone. But third, they also stood in need to be saved through faith alone. What the Apostle Paul says about Abraham and David was also true for Adam and Eve. When the Apostle Paul says in Romans 4, 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This was also true for Adam and Eve. They could not be justified by God or before God by working or doing. They were ungodly. So they couldn't be justified by wearing the fig leaves. 
They couldn't be justified by giving God sacrifices. They couldn't be justified by tears of sorrow coming forth from their eyes. They couldn't be justified by trying to put back together the pieces of the broken covenant of works. They couldn't be justified even by trying to fulfill the dominion mandate that God gave them. If they wanted their sins forgiven, and if they wanted peace with God, they needed to stop working and believe in the God who justifies the ungodly. They needed to reach out with the empty, beggarly hand of faith and receive and embrace God's gracious promise of salvation by faith alone. It would be through faith alone that they would ever be saved. But fourth, Adam and Eve had to be saved for the glory of God alone. Adam and Eve would get no credit, no pat on the back, no congratulations, no praise if they would ever be saved. They didn't do anything except lose glory and damn themselves to hell. They fell short of the glory of God. So to them belonged shame. To them belonged embarrassment. To them belonged scorn. To them belonged everlasting contempt. So if they would ever be saved, God would get all the glory. He would get the glory for planning their salvation. He would get the glory for accomplishing their salvation. He would get the glory for applying their salvation. So if Adam and Eve would ever open their mouths again, it would be to boast in the glory of God. And their mouths were shut before God. If they were gonna, ever going to open it again, if they were ever going to boast in anything, it would be boasting in the Lord. The fifth and finally, Adam and Eve had to be saved in Christ alone. Now, I think this is the sola that we see shining brightest here in Adam and Eve's dark and hopeless situation. And this is really the sola that we have come here today to feast our souls upon. But I think we specifically see solus Christus in the words found in Genesis 3.15. So again, this is what God says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, there have been many interpretations of this passage, sadly. There's some out there who see this as a promise concerning a perpetual battle that will take place between humans and snakes. And they'll point to this verse and say, see, this is why human beings hate snakes so much. My grandmother even had a snake in her bathroom last night. My dad had to go over and hopefully he was able to kill it. But somebody could use Genesis 3.15 and say, this is why we hate snakes so much. Others have seen this just as a promise of an age-long struggle between the forces of good and evil. Just kind of generically, good is fighting against evil here. Or just the people of God has to have to fight against the forces of evil. But I believe these interpretations fall woefully short of what God is really saying to us here. Instead, I think this verse contains the very first promise of the gospel. The proto-evangelium. The start of redemption, the dawning of hope for fallen humanity, the beginning ray of light in the darkness of sin and death, the first revelation of salvation in Christ. 
as Nehemiah Cox once said, the first discovery of God's saving grace, or as Richard Barcelo says, the divine remedy for the fall. So that's what I see here in this verse. I see the promise of Christ, the skull-crushing seed of the woman. Now, this is not some novel or fanciful interpretation. So let me give you four lines of evidence, which I think make pretty clear that Christ alone is being presented here as the only Savior of sinners. The, four, the first is a historical argument. This view that Genesis 3.15 is proclaiming the first uh, promise of Christ was the predominant interpretation throughout church history. So let me just give you a survey of what godly men have said throughout the centuries. For instance, the early church fathers saw the promise of Christ in Genesis 3.15. To set forth just one example, Irenaeus, in his treatise entitled Against Heresies, says this, He, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, has therefore in his work of recapitulation summed up all things, both waging war against our enemy and crushing him who had at the beginning led us away captives in Adam and trampled upon his head, as you can perceive in Genesis, that God said to the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall be on the watch for your head and you on the watch for his heel. For from that time, he who should be born of a woman, namely from the virgin, after the likeness of Adam, was preached as keeping watch for the head of the serpent. That just kind of summarizes the early church view of Genesis 3.15. But our Puritan forefathers also took this view. It's interesting to note that three times in the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, we are told that Genesis 3.15 holds forth the promise of Christ. Chapter 7, paragraph 3, chapter 8, paragraph 6, and chapter 20, paragraph 1. For the sake of time, I'll just read what chapter 20, paragraph 1 says, which is concerning the gospel and the extent of its grace. It says this, Because the covenant of works was broken by sin and was unable to confer life, God was pleased to proclaim the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, as the means of calling the elect and producing in them faith and repentance. In this promise, the gospel in its substance was revealed and made effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. Right? That's our confession of faith. But the great theologian John Owen also agreed that the substance of the gospel is contained in Genesis 3.15. Here are his words. It would not be hard to show that all of our soteriology, our doctrine concerning the Savior and mediator and his appointed work, along with justification by grace, evangelical repentance, eternal rewards, and the resurrection of the body is all embraced, however obscurely, out of this first promise. I mean, think about all those glorious doctrines. And he's saying in seed form, they are all there in Genesis 3.15. The whole doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation is found in this first promise given to Adam and Eve. 
In fact, Owen says that this first promise of Christ in Genesis 3.15 is so important that without it, the whole Old Testament would be nonsense and the whole New Testament would have no solid foundation to rest upon. Again, here are his words. This is the very foundation of the faith of the church. And if it be denied, nothing of the economy or dispensation of God towards it from the beginning can be understood. The whole doctrine and story of the Old Testament must be rejected as useless and no foundation be left in the truth of God for the introduction of the new. Pretty strong words. But that's the vital importance that he places upon Genesis 3.15. But even more than this, the late Edmund Clowney, who was a wonderful biblical theologian in the 20th century, taught that all of human history is dependent on this verse. He says, the only reason why we have human history at all is because of the proto-evangelium, the first promise of the gospel. Humanity would have been wiped out immediately if it wasn't for Genesis 3.15. So throughout church history, theologians, creeds, and confessions have asserted that the promise of Christ is contained in this very verse. So that's just a historical argument. But let's look exegetically at this passage for a moment. As, as we look at this verse itself, it's clear that God is presenting to us a personal, individual Savior. Now, as you can see in Genesis 3.15, there are three main statements. And I think the way that we should think about them are three tiers or three levels of promise which build off of each other. So let's consider them one at a time. The first level is this, or the first tier. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, this refers to the initial conflict that Eve and the serpent will have. God promises here that the woman, who is Eve, would renounce her allegiance to Satan and become his avowed enemy. Right? He, she took the side of Satan. She worshiped Satan. She walked away from God. But God is promising that she would once again become his avowed enemy. Enmity or hostility would mark their relationship. She would fight against him and be at war with him the rest of her life. So I think implicit in this pronouncement is the promise of Eve's deliverance and salvation. She would repent. She would turn back to God and she would never take the side of Satan again. That's the first level. But the second level is this. God says, and I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. Now, this is speaking about future realities. Of course, we see this happening between Cain and Abel, but this is what would happen to Eve's offspring. God promises that the offspring or, or children or literally seed of Eve will continually do battle against the children or the seed of the serpent. And this would go on throughout human history. Here, God is separating the human race into two classes. You have the righteous and you have the wicked. You have the saved and you have the unsaved. You have those who do the will of God and you have those who do the will of the devil. And God is promising here that these two groups of people will always be at war with one another. But the point is, God's not only going to save Eve, but he will also save some of her descendants. 
Some of the offspring of Eve will take the side of God. They'll follow in the footsteps of their first mother and renounce Satan and his works. But what about the third level? Well, this is what God says. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is something that I think will happen in the far distant future, at least when this was given. God promises here that one of Eve's children will make war against the serpent. So this is, is not a battle between two groups of people, but between two individuals. And that comes out very clearly because singular pronouns and verbs are being used to describe these two warriors. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. One person is being spoken of here in level three. And this is really the most important part of this promise. The first two promises build upon this one. Eve will fight the serpent. Eve's children will fight the serpent's children. But now the ongoing war will end with a climactic, monumental battle between a child from Eve and the ancient serpent himself. So a future son of Eve will come and go toe-to-toe with the devil, who is represented by the serpent here. So think of these two as two great juggernauts fighting for the, uh, to the death for the fate of humanity. That's what we have being presented to us. Two monumental giants, two generals leading two armies fighting against each other for the fate of humanity. But God tells us exactly what the outcome of this fight will be. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He first tells us that the devil will be destroyed. God says to the serpent, he shall bruise your head. The woman's seed will bruise, or you could translate it as crush the serpent's head or a skull. Now, brethren, this is a fatal blow. You crush somebody's skull, that thing dies. There's no coming back from being bruised or crushed upon the head. The devil's rule and reign over the world would soon come to an end, and God would use the foot of the woman's seed to utterly conquer him and crush him and destroy him. I think this is further emphasized just one verse previously in verse 14, when God says this to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly, you shall go and dust. You shall eat all the days of your life. Well, it's interesting when you look through the scriptures, the phrase on your belly, you shall go or dust, you shall eat. Well, those are figurative ways of describing humiliation and subjugation and absolute and complete defeat. It's a figurative way of saying, Satan, you will be entirely destroyed. You will be conquered by the foot of the seed of the woman. So it's the seed of the woman. He, he will come and he will utterly defeat the one who tempted our first parents and wrecked and ruined the world. So, the devil's going to be destroyed, but the son of Eve will not go unscathed in this mighty battle. God also says to the serpent, you shall bruise his heel. The serpent will fatally wound this glorious savior by bruising or crushing his heel. 
The valiant effort of the woman's seed to destroy the serpent will end up costing him his life. As he crushes the serpent under his feet, the serpent will sink his fangs into his heel and inject poisonous venom into his body, which will lead to injury and death. So the war then ends with the death of these two premier or chief warriors. The seed of the woman will give his life in order to destroy the serpent and save humanity. Hopefully you see Christ there. But brethren, this does not mean that Jesus Christ was defeated. The ultimate victory goes to the skull-crushing seed of the woman. His skull's not crushed. It's his heel that is crushed. But he's going to trample upon this serpent, and he's going to trample him under his feet. And so the ultimate victory goes to Christ because he is the one who will absolutely destroy the author and original instigator of all mischief and misery and sin which came into this world. I think it's fairly clear just as we look at Genesis 3.15 that this is a promise of a personal individual Savior who will come and save the world through divinely judging this wicked satanic serpent. But here's the third argument. The promise of Genesis 3.15 doesn't sit here all alone until we get to the New Testament. Instead, this promise is progressively revealed and enlarged upon throughout Old Testament history. Our own confession of faith says this. It says that this promise is revealed afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery of it was completed in the New Testament. So there's many different ways that this promise is enlarged upon, clarified, built upon throughout the Old Testament. But one of the ways is through explicit prophecies which further clarify the person and work of the skull-crushing seed of the woman. So the Old Testament gives us more and more information concerning who this glorious son of Eve is and what he will come to do. Now, I wish we had time to really dig into all of these Old Testament prophecies, but because we don't, let me just set, uh, summarize several of them for you. So first, in Genesis 12, 22 and 24, the seed of the woman is also called the seed of Abraham and the seed of Isaac, who will possess the gate of his enemies and bless the nations. So again, it's being enlarged upon not only the seed of of Eve, but he will also be the seed of Abraham. In Genesis 49, the seed of the woman is also called the king from Judah, whose hand will be on the neck of his enemies and who will receive praise and obedience from all people. Third, in Numbers 24, the seed of the woman is also called the star from Jacob, whose kingdom will be exalted and whose scepter would smash the forehead of his enemies. There's a similar theme of seed, judgment upon the enemies of God, even particularly on their heads. And Samuel, 2 Samuel 2.7, the seed of the woman is also the son of David, whose throne will be established forever over an everlasting kingdom and who will break his enemies with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel so that they will lick the dust beneath his feet. Fifth, in Isaiah 7 and 9, 
The seed of the woman is also the son of the virgin who will break the yoke of oppression from his people's necks and bring in everlasting peace. Sixth, in Daniel 2, the seed of the woman is also the stone from God that God will cast out from heaven, which will strike and break in pieces all the satanic kingdoms of this world. Seventh, in Daniel 7, the seed of the woman is also the son of man who will come to the ancient of days and will receive an everlasting kingdom and will be worshipped by all peoples, nations, and languages. And eighth, in Isaiah 53, the seed of the woman is also the suffering servant of the Lord who will justify and save his people by being pierced for their transgressions and crushed for their iniquities. I think we should really see a common theme in all of these prophecies. Again, further clarifying who the seed of the woman actually will be. So the promise of the seed, the promise of the son, the promise of the offspring of Eve is picked up and enlarged upon throughout the Old Testament. And brethren, this is because every single Old Testament saint looked to and believed in this coming one for salvation. There wasn't another savior. There wasn't another way of salvation. He is called the hope of Israel. He is called the redemption of Jerusalem. The New Testament tells us how so many Old Testament saints were looking forward to him. Abraham rejoiced to see his day. Moses wrote about him and treasured him more than all the riches of Egypt. David spoke about his resurrection and his ascension to the everlasting throne of God. Job looked forward to seeing him stand upon the earth on the last day. And all the Old Testament prophets announced beforehand his coming and were persecuted on his account. That's the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Well, when we get to the New Testament, the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 should be as clear as day. Now, it's true that Genesis 3.15 is not explicitly quoted in the New Testament, but it is certainly alluded to, and it is the background of so many New Testament texts. I wish we could look at them all, but sadly, I just have to summarize a lot of them for you. But take this for instance, the devil is specifically identified as the ancient serpent in Revelation 12, 9 and Revelation 22, who makes war on the saints. Now think about it. What other ancient serpent do you know of in the Bible that makes war on the saints? I only know of one, and that's the one back in Genesis 3 that tempted our first parents. So it's pretty clear that the New Testament writers, looking back at Genesis 3.15, saw that the ancient serpent was the devil himself. But the Lord Jesus Christ is also identified as the seed of the woman in the New Testament in various ways. I just went through a lot of Old Testament texts which prophesy the seed of the woman in different names and titles, but we find those different names and titles being applied to Jesus Christ throughout the New Testament. He's called the servant of the Lord. He's called the son of man. He's called the son of David. He's called, called the star from Jacob. He's called the king from Judah. He is called the son and seed of Abraham. So all these titles link him to the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. But he's also the one born of woman 
Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman. Yeah, he was born of Mary, but I think this is hearkening back even to the first woman, Eve, that he is the promise fulfilled of the school-crushing seed of the woman. So he's born of the woman, and of course he's called the second and last Adam in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So he's born of woman, he's born of Eve, he's the second and last Adam. I think we should take from that that the New Testament is telling us that he is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. So the New Testament is clear that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who took on human flesh to bruise, crush, and destroy the devil in his works and to bring in justification and life for his people. And there's so many texts that tell us how Jesus came to destroy the devil. Just read through the Gospels, read through the epistles. And these are all hearkening back to Genesis 3.15. So we're told that Christ came to triumph over the strong man, to bind him up and to plunder his house. He came to thwart the devil's plans to steal, kill, and destroy by healing all who were oppressed by the devil. He came to throw the devil to the ground, lock him in a pit, and put him to open shame. He came to dethrone the devil, judge the devil, cast the devil out, and banish him from ever ruling over the earth again. But I think the two clearest passages in the New Testament, which really emphasize how Christ has come as the seed of the woman to destroy the devil, are these. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Right, Christ, the Son of God, partook of flesh and blood. He was truly man. He became the seed of Eve. Why? So that by his death he would destroy the devil and deliver enslaved, fearful sinners from his powerful reign over their lives. But the second one is this, 1 John 3, 8. And it says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did the Son of God appear? Simply put, to wipe out all of the devil's works. Temptation, sin, misery, death, curse, condemnation, the list could go on and on and on. All of these things Christ came to destroy and in its place bring in everlasting blessedness. So this is happening every time a sinner is saved. But we know as we continue to read our New Testaments that the fullest extent of the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 will happen when Christ returns in glory. This is when it will be completely and fully fulfilled. When Christ comes from heaven, riding on his majestic steed, coming to save his people, utterly wipe out his enemies, and cast the devil into the lake of fire. That's when Genesis 3.15 will be completely and fully fulfilled. Revelation 20.10 states the ultimate doom of Satan when it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Brethren, that's what it means for Christ to crush the serpent's head. 
on that day, the heel of our glorious and victorious Savior will completely crush the serpent's head and dust will be the devil's food for all eternity. Well, let's now briefly consider some important lessons we can take away from all of this to end. The first one is this. Let's be amazed at the wisdom of God here in Genesis 3.15. God knew exactly what was needed to reverse the curse and restore paradise after our first parents fell. Since sin came into the world by a man, by a man sin would be dealt with. But since no man can pay for the sins of the world and defeat the devil, God himself would have to take on human flesh and do it. So, brethren, God gave us exactly what we stood in need of, a Savior who is both God and man. According to his human nature, he was descended from Eve, born of woman. But according to his divine nature, he is the only begotten Son of God. So may our response to this be, as Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. But secondly, be struck by the mercy of God. God would have been entirely just to condemn Adam and Eve and all the fallen race to eternity in hell the very moment they sinned against him. He'd be entirely just. As Edmund Clowney said, there would be no human history without Genesis 3.15. But brethren, God is a merciful God. He could have been just. We could all be in hell right now. And yet instead of pouring out his almighty wrath upon his image bearers, he promised them salvation. So may we be struck by the mercy of God to offer salvation to hell-deserving sinners. But third, let's be encouraged by the faithfulness of God. God made a promise to our first parents that, humanly speaking, seemed impossible to fulfill. This world sold under sin and enslaved to the devil would actually be set free. Sinners would be saved. The devil would be defeated. The curse would be removed. Paradise would be restored. And all this through the work of one person? Yes, that is exactly what God promised in Genesis 3.15. And for thousands of years, this promise was in constant danger of failing. Think about it. How many times did the devil do his best to destroy God's people in the Old Testament in order that the promise of the Messiah would be dashed into pieces? Whether it was through sending pagan armies against the people of God or tempting the Israelites to sin against God and provoke him so that his wrath would be poured out upon them. The devil wanted to crush this promise from ever being fulfilled. And think about the New Testament. Even when Jesus was born, how often did the devil try to kill him through leaders like Herod or the scribes and Pharisees or tempt him to sin against God and not go to the cross? The brethren, the devil's efforts were all in vain. God did not deviate from his original plans one single inch. He was utterly faithful to fulfill his promise. And Christ went to the cross and crushed the devil underneath his feet. So brethren, if God has made good on his first promise, and I would say his greatest promise, 
Will he not make good on every single promise he has made to you? Remember the words of Paul in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So whenever you face tough times, remember the faithfulness of God. Remember the faithfulness of God bringing forth this great promise. He never deviated. He never forsook that first promise. It was never made void. He fulfilled it. He makes good on every one of his promises. But brethren, don't doubt, but believe. But fourth, Christ alone is the central message of the Bible. Now, remember when Jesus walked with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and he explained to them how the Old Testament scriptures prophesied about him? Well, where do you think that he started? <laughs> I don't know with absolute certainty. It says he began with Moses. Well, where in the books of Moses? There's five of them. I don't know exactly where he started, but it would be entirely appropriate for him to start at Genesis 3.15, because that verse is all about him. And since that verse is all about him, it really should affect the way that we view the entirety of the scriptures. Because this verse serves as the foundation stone which the rest of the Bible is built upon. So we could say that Genesis 3.15 is the thematic statement of the entire Bible. It contains the theme and main message of the scriptures. The Bible is all about the person and work of the skull-crushing seed of the woman. So as we read our Bibles, we need to read them in light of this verse. Every passage we read is like a root that grows out of the taproot of Genesis 3.15 or a stream that flows from the main river of this verse. Brethren, all the Old Testament prophecies and promises, all of the covenants, all of the commandments, all of the history, all the institutions, all the types and shadows, and all the people and events find their basis and meaning in Genesis 3.15. And John Owen said that the whole Old Testament would be useless and the foundation of the new would be entirely ruined if Genesis 3.15 did not proclaim the promise of Christ. The whole reason there is a human history and the whole reason there is an Old Testament and the whole reason there is a nation of Israel is because of God's original promise to bring Christ our Savior into this world. So brethren, we need to make sure that Genesis 3.15 influences and impacts our interpretation and application of every text of Scripture. Just another way to say the Scriptures are Christ-centered. They're gospel-saturated in Christ. Fifthly, Christ alone is the only way of salvation for all people. Now, we may be tempted to think that salvation in Christ alone is just some sort of New Testament phenomenon. That, the old, that in the Old Testament, people were saved by their works or by animal sacrifices or by just believing in God in some general way. Right? We might be tempted to read those passages that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for right, as righteousness. As somehow God, Abraham just generically believing in God and following some temporal promises given to him. There have been theologians who have taught this. That God has even revealed different ways of salvation throughout human history. 
But understanding that Christ is the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 helps us to see that Christ has always been the only way of salvation for all people from the very beginning of time. Christ is not just the Savior of people living in a certain geographical area during a certain period of time. No, Christ is a universal Savior. The Bible calls him the Savior of the world, the Savior of all people, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. He didn't just come to save the sons of Abraham, but he came to save the fallen sons and daughters of Adam. God promised to send a Redeemer thousands of years before Abraham was called and the nation of Israel was formed. The first promise of the gospel came before there was even a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Remember, it was made to Adam and Eve, humanity's first parents. So it's always been God's intention to save fallen sons and daughters of Adam and to save them only in one way, through the precious blood and perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Christ has come. He's come as the seed of the woman. He's come as the seed of Abraham. He's come as the seed of David to redeem sinners and to remove the curse from them and bring in everlasting blessedness, not just again to one particular group, but to all tribes and all tongues and all peoples and all nations. So brethren, let's make sure that we present Christ to everyone. We need to preach the gospel to everyone. Let's go out into all the world and proclaim him as the only savior of the fallen race of men, because there is no other. He is the seed of the woman to save wicked, wretched sinners from all over the place and all periods of time. I've got two more applications in the way in. Sixthly, Christ alone is the only hope for sinners living in a fallen world. Since the fall, Genesis 3.15 teaches us that sinners have been saved according to the word of God alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone, and in Christ alone. There is no other Savior promised by God. There is no other way of salvation presented in the Bible. God only promises one remedy for the fall. He only gives one solution to mankind's greatest problem. Salvation has always and only been in Jesus Christ from the beginning to the end. Christ alone is the one who saves. So what Peter said about Christ rings throughout human history when he said, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or as Zwingli once proclaimed, Christ is the only way of salvation of all who were, are now, or shall be. So, brethren, how blasphemous is it then to ascribe salvation to anything or anyone else? It is a grievous sin to believe that other religions besides Christianity proclaim the way of salvation, or other people besides Christ have the ability to save sinners. In particular, it sickens me to see how the Roman Catholic Church has so twisted this very verse, believe it or not. Instead of applying it to Christ, you know who they apply it to? They apply it to Mary. 
They teach that Mary, not Christ, is the skull crusher. She's the dragon slayer. It is her foot that tramples upon the head of the devil. Now you can see this depicted all over the place. You can see this depicted in many paintings and pictures and statues found throughout Roman Catholic churches. And you can even go buy these things in their bookstores. In fact, the Dewey Reams Bible, which is based off the Latin Vulgate and is an officially authorized English Roman Catholic Bible, actually translates Genesis 3.15 in this way. This is what it says. And note particularly the third tier or level of this promise. I will put enmities between you and the woman and your seed and her seed. She shall crush your head and you shall lie in wait for her heel. The Hebrew Bible says he, the Greek Septuagint says he, all the other English translations say he, but their reading says she. So they make this into a prophecy, not concerning Christ, but concerning Mary. They build an important Marian doctrine off a misinterpretation of this verse. And in the process, brethren, they distort the entire storyline of the Bible. And they steal glory from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They make it about Mary. So that's why they can say that Mary is a co-redeemer. Mary is a co-mediator. Mary is all these things. If you are a sinner outside of Christ, please, please, please do not look to Mary for help. She was a blessed woman. She had the blessed opportunity and privilege to give birth to the seed of the woman, the savior of the world. But she was a sinner just like you and I in need of Christ alone to save her. So don't look to Mary and don't look to yourself. There's no inner light in you. There's no inherent goodness in you. You are dead in Adam. The guilt and stain of Adam's original sin is upon you. And there is nothing inside of you except a black heart that's full of sin and rebellion against God. Instead, the scriptures are clear. Look to Jesus Christ alone. Look to the true and only skull crushing seed of the woman. He is your only hope. He alone can bring you life, bring you from death to life, from sin to righteousness, from slavery to freedom, and from serving Satan to worshiping God. So see yourself as you truly are, as a miserable, hell-deserving sinner, sold under sin and enslaved to the tyranny of the devil. And find refuge in Jesus Christ alone. Run to him, trust in him, hide yourself in him. In him, you can find life. In him, you can find righteousness. In him, you can find peace. In him, you can find blessedness. In him, you can find victory. In him, you can find freedom. And you can have true rest for your soul. This is the last thing I'd like to say. And this is for us as believers. Christ alone secures our ultimate victory over Satan. Although the devil is a defeated foe, he is not fully subjugated just yet. He's been put on a leash, but there is still some slack in that leash. And with every bit of strength and energy and shrewdness that he possesses, he makes war with the saints on earth. He hates Jesus Christ. 
He hates the bride of Christ and he hates the gospel of Christ. So it is his sole intention to drag as many people as he can to hell with him. He knows his time is short, but he still has some time to do a lot of damage on earth. As Peter says, our adversary prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So, brethren, how can we, uh, we as believers overcome the constant onslaughts of the devil? How can we as a church be assured of ultimate victory over him? How can we resist him and stand firm against him? How can we know for sure that the devil will not devour us? Well, it's only by having a constant dependence and trust in Christ alone. Now, do you know where in the New Testament Genesis 3.15 is most explicitly referenced? Romans 16, verse 20. But the interesting thing is, it is not applied directly to Jesus Christ. Instead, it is applied directly to the church of Jesus Christ. Hear what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Rome. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Brethren, this is great encouragement. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under the church's feet. Why? Well, I think it has everything to do with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That gracious gospel promise. The reason that Satan will be crushed under our feet is because Satan was crushed under the feet of Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the seed of the woman who crushed Satan under his feet. God promises us here that he will soon crush Satan under our feet. You see, Christ's work for us leads to Christ's work in us. Since Christ won the victory over Satan as our representative head, we will win the victory over Satan as the church. We will conquer the devil, as the book of Revelation says, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. So, brethren, the seed of the woman is the mighty fortress that we need to run to every day of our lives. The seed of the woman is the great general that we must get behind as we march through this world to heaven. The seed of the woman is the one who will protect us because on our own, we are weak. On our own, we are defenseless. On our own, we cannot fight this great mighty foe. But we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So as the psalmist says in Psalm 44, 5, Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. And again in Psalm 60, verse 12, With God we shall do vali valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So let's not look to our own strength. Let's not lean on our own understanding to try to tread down our foes because brethren, we don't have any of that. We don't have any wisdom. We don't have any strength. Again, we can't wrestle this strong man on our own. Let's continue to look to Christ alone for with him, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, oh, how we thank you for Jesus Christ. How we thank you for your wisdom. How we thank you for your mercy. How we thank you for your faithfulness. How we thank you for your son. Thank you for bringing him into this world. Thank you that he is everything that we stand in need of. 
And we pray that he would continually be honored in our hearts. Help us to sanctify the Lord Christ in our hearts every day of our lives. And help us not to depend on our own strength, but look to him who is strong and mighty to save. Thank you, Lord, for your mercies to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.